At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Many of us often wonder if going to church is worth it. But what if we told you God has a beautiful design for the church that very much includes you? The book of 1 Timothy speaks to these truths. And if each of us submits to them, our church will function as the loving family God intends. Join us this week as we look at the answers to the question, Church, why bother? If you have your Bible, please make your way to 1 Timothy chapter 6. That's where we're going to spend our time today. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Pastor Chris is spending the morning with our Farmington Hills campus, so please be in prayer for him and the Farmington Hills location. And uh, we're going to finish out our series, Church, Why Bother? today as we close out this letter from Paul to Timothy. I was reminded of a simple truism this week. Here's the truism. It's a lot easier to start things than to finish them. It's a lot easier to start things than to finish them. Thursday morning, I woke up at 5 a.m., which for me is early. I know that's not early for everybody else. For the 11.30 crowd, which is really 10.30 today, it's probably really early. But For there are a lot of people in the culture, 5 a.m., it's like, oh, they've already been to the gym, they've written a book, they've taken care of their kids, they've done whatever they need to do. But 5 a.m. for me, it's really early, and I got up at 5, by 5.30, I was in a taxi out of Grand Canyon Village to do a hike that's called the Rim to River to Rim. It's a 16 and a half mile hike where you start at the top of the Grand Canyon. I got a little map here to show you what the hike is, if you're familiar or if you've been there before. You start at the top of the Grand Canyon, make your way down the South Kaibab Trail to the Colorado River, and then climb back up along a trail called Bright Angel Trail. And along the way, you come across these comforting and attractive warning signs all over the place. They look like this. It makes you really hungry when you see it. And they say, hiking to the Colorado River and back in one day is not recommended due to long distance, extreme heat, and a nearly 5,000 foot, 1,500 meter elevation change. If you think you have the fitness and expertise to attempt this extremely strenuous hike, please seek advice from a park ranger at the Backcountry Information Center. It's a lot easier to start things than to finish them. Well, it's March, so the weather is totally different. It was 30 degrees at the top, 60 at the bottom, so heat wasn't really the issue. And going down was wonderful. It was actually incredible. There's this thing in our world called gravity, and it really helps you. And it's a lot of fun, actually. And yeah, it could be a little, you know, bruising on your knees and things like that, but it was a breeze going down this canyon. In fact, hiking through the ice and the snow at the top, it was incredible. Watching the sunrise, incredible. Hanging out with the postal service who take about a half a dozen mules down to the bottom of the canyon every day to drop off mail and supplies. It's really one of the only places left in the country where they deliver mail by mule. That was incredible. Here's a picture of me following them. It was just stunning. Seeing the Colorado River, incredible. But then there's the hike back up. I took a video to show my children, but I thought I'd let you guys take a a peek at it here this morning. So check this out. So I'm on my way back up. Really haven't started too much yet. Got about seven miles uphill to go. Here's what I need to, here's what I need to climb. That's intimidating. Looking up at the snow and the top of the canyon, it's intimidating. It's incredibly 
hard. And it wasn't just incredibly hard, it was also incredibly humbling because I was passed up multiple times by some senior folks <laughs> that were just like trucking along these older men and women and they're just like, hey, have a great day. And I'm just like wheezing. Just, okay, go ahead, just keep walking. The point is, it's a lot easier to start things than to finish them. I made it. I can't walk right, but I made it. Doing laundry. It's easy to start. Folding the laundry and matching up all the socks, that's harder. Ordering a 48-ounce porterhouse steak, that's easy. Finishing it, that's harder. Starting a house project, that's easy. Finishing a house project, much harder. At the 10 a.m. service, I saw like a half a dozen couples where somebody looked right over at their spouse or right over at somebody and they're like, yup, yup, you. There was judgment being passed around the room. Starting an annual Bible reading plan, it's easier to get it going than it is to get it done. There are all kinds of examples of this dynamic in life and it is no different when it comes to following Jesus. It's much easier to start following Jesus than it is to finish life following Jesus. And if you've been with us through the series, if you remember, back in the first chapter of Paul's letter to Timothy, his disciple, who led this church called the Ephesian Church, the church in the city of Ephesus, in the Greco-Roman world, a church of affluence and prestige and, inf- and all kinds of influence as well. He says this, Paul does to Timothy, some people within your church, Timothy, they have made a shipwreck of, your fa- of their faith. In verse 10 of this last chapter, he speaks of those who wander away from the faith. In verse 21, he talks about those who have swerved from the faith. It reminds me of the famous parable of Jesus Christ in Matthew 13, the parable of the sowers. Remember, a farmer scatters seed. Some fell along a trampled down path where the soil was hard. Some fell into rocky soil. Some fell into the soil overwhelmed with thorns and weeds. And some falls into fertile soil and produces fruit. The seed is a metaphor for God's word. And the soil represents our hearts and minds where God's word gets planted. All that is needed to start spiritual life happens through the hearing of God's word and the planting of the seed. But what happens in the parable? Something started, but in three out of the four cases, the seed doesn't get across the finish line. The seed on the path becomes bird food. The seed in the rocks experiences malnutrition and dies. The seed in the weeds loses loses out to the competition and it withers away. The point, Jesus was saying, lots of people hear the word of God. Lots of people start the process of following him and receiving what he has to teach about life and faith, but not a lot of people end up with a spiritually fruitful life and finish the race. What you find in the culture today so much is so many people want all the benefits without any of the obedience. People want the results of the faith, and if you're a theist, if you believe in God, then why wouldn't you? Because you're offered in Christ forgiveness, eternal life, peace, the love and acceptance of God. But some people want all of those benefits without having to practice the faith. I love how one of the most influential authors in my life, his name is Dallas Willard wrote this. He talked about this in his book, The Great Omission. He said, the greatest issue facing the world today with all of its heartbreaking needs 
is whether those who by profession or culture are identified as Christians will become disciples. They identify themselves as Christians, but will they actually become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence? So in chapter 6, we see Paul writing to Timothy with a sense of urgency. He knows what's at stake. He knows how difficult it is to finish well. So he's urging, he's pleading with Timothy. He's not just giving instructions, he's exhorting. Twice he uses the language of charge. He's saying, I charge you, Timothy. And as I charge you to live this way, I want you to charge your church family to do the same. It's like a coach giving a pre-game speech. The coach isn't so much teaching all new strategies right before the game. They did that at practice all week. He'll remind them of some of those, but ultimately the pre-game speech, it's a charge. It's an encouragement. Win the game. Play hard. After all the practice, go finish what we started. And just like the coach touches on the highlights from practice all week long, Paul touches on his highlights throughout the letter in this last chapter, these last verses. He's already talked about false teachers in chapter one. He's going to do it again. He's already talked about the love of money in chapter three. He reviews it again. He's already talked about avoiding irreverent, silly philosophies and myths of the culture in chapter four. He does it again. He's just repeating and then pressing home what he already said. And ultimately what he's saying here in these verses is that we will finish well when we focus our lives on pursuing Jesus Christ. There's a lot of things that people pursue. We will finish well in the faith when we focus our lives on pursuing Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter whether you're 20 and wrapping up your first quarter of life perhaps, or whether you're 80 and maybe in that final quarter or closing minutes every day, regardless of what generation you find yourself in, there's a spiritual enemy right now waging war against your soul. Every day, all day, there is a world that is begging you to buy into its false gospel, its false good news. And so we all desperately need God's truth to guide us. We need his grace to keep us so that we'll be able to finish the game for his glory. Now, part of this whole idea of finishing well is a bit of a paradox. Let me explain this as we start into the text because it's important that we understand this because on the one hand, God will finish what he started. When he makes a promise, he'll carry it on to completion. This is what he says in Philippians chapter one, verse six. Paul writes to that church and says, and I am sure of this, I'm convinced of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So if God has started a journey of faith in you as you've responded to Jesus, he will carry it on to completion. Yet at the same time, Paul says, on the other hand, I want you, Timothy, to fight the good fight. Put forth the effort. Both are true. God will hold you. He will keep you. He will sustain you. His grace is sufficient. And at the same time, true disciples of Jesus demonstrate that God is finishing what he started as they steadily learn from Jesus how to live the life of the kingdom and produce the fruit that God has already prepared in advance for you to do. So how does Paul help us with this hard journey of continuing to follow Christ until that last whistle blows? He gives us three encouragements. Here's the first. Keep yourself 
from pride and foolish controversy. Keep yourself from pride and foolish controversy. He wants to reinforce what he already brought up. He wants Timothy to see the character and the motivations that are really underneath the surface of those false teachers. So look at verse three. It says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil, suspicions, and constant friction amongst people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of, you could almost say here, material gain. So he reminds them, these people, are, they're puffed up. They're in your church. This letter's to be read right in front of them. It's a warning to them. They're puffed up. There's arrogance. There's conceit. They understand nothing. Not only is their understanding of God confused, their understanding of themselves is confused. It's like what Paul says to the Roman church when he says, we think more highly of ourselves than we ought. And when we do, it can lead us into a way of life that is completely inconsistent with the gospel all the while while we think we're full of wisdom. And because of their arrogance, they had this unhealthy craving for controversy. In other words, they loved to fight about what they were convinced of with anybody who was willing. This reminds me so much of our culture. This reminds me of our news cycle, really. I was thinking about that this week. Let me share just a few of the headlines from the last couple days. These came from three of the largest news outlets, Fox, CNN, MSNBC. But just listen to the language. Listen in this context of discussing unhealthy cravings for controversy and how that's an appetite that the world has. Here's three headlines right here. Biden's budget draws battle lines for debt ceiling fight. Raskin shreds McCarthy for scandalous role in January 6th deception. White House stops holding back, slams Tucker Carlson by name. It's this combative language, fight, shreds, slams. It's like you're watching the WWE. And it's just headlines. The point is that all around us, especially with politics, you could just pick about any topic. And even theology, we have this unhealthy craving for controversy, for controversy. And the issue is that the motivation doesn't always simply seem to be standing for the truth or fighting for righteousness. The issue is that we're puffed up with conceit. And we want to demonstrate our superiority over some other person. So we idolize ourselves and demonize our enemies. I don't think it's simply a societal issue. It's a church issue too, which is why Paul put it in the letter to be read to the church. It shows up a little bit more nuanced. But this is how I see it most often within the church family. This uh, unhealthy craving for controversy, this arrogance, this conceit of being puffed up. It's this attitude that uh, people oftentimes within the church say, yeah, I, I get it. I know that I need to put myself under uh, uh, an authority outside of myself because I know that my intuitions are not always correct. And so that's why I believe the Bible to be authoritatively true. But then in the next sentence, they'll make this move. They'll say, I need this source of truth that has a bigger perspective than I do. But the Bible, that's the authority. But then what they do is they interpret the Bible based upon their own ideas and then ultimately put it under their own authority. 
And so it's like, yeah, I believe that this is the word of God. This is full of truth. As long as I still can tell you how to interpret it correctly based on my own feelings and desires. So this is what I think it says, but ultimately it's my authority, but I'm gonna make sure that what it says is consistent with what I think. So you end up twisting the words of scripture, ending up with a false gospel with news that is no good news at all. And the point is that God says, no, no, the, the better way is not to be puffed up with arrogance, but to actually place ourselves under the submission of the word of God, just the way Jesus did, the way of Jesus, the way of the kingdom. It's not haughtiness, it's not arrogance, it's servitude and humility wrapped up in community. So that when we interpret the word of God, we have the help of one another so that it can actually point us to the kingdom of Jesus and his way. Jesus, the truth is, he could have stripped down every single naysayer and cynic that ever crossed paths with him. I mean, we can all agree to that. If somebody came up to him and he wanted to expose them, he could have done it in seconds. It wouldn't have taken much effort or time. Politicians, religious leaders, generals, fishermen, tax collectors, children, everybody. But what did he do instead? He didn't mock everybody's stupidity. He asked them questions and spoke God's word to them so they'd come to see his love for them so that they would recognize ultimately who he was, Savior and Lord. Now think about our faith. As Christians, we believe we have all fallen short of God's standard of holiness. We believe we've been corrupted by rebellious sin. We believe that we're so broken that God was the only solution to our problem. So we believe God put on flesh, lived amongst us, died for us, covered over our sin, atoned for our sin because of how messed up we are. And yet, even though this is the core foundational principles of our faith, we still sometimes have this tendency to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Paul says this attitude is a matter of wandering away from the faith altogether. Arrogance in yourself leads to abandonment of your faith. Arrogance prioritizes your way and your wisdom over the wisdom and the way of Christ. Now our response is not self-hatred and self-loathing. That is not it at all. We are much more valuable than that, friends. But as we submit underneath of the authority of God's word, as we live it out in community, our response is to show desperate need and recognize that a wooden cross and an empty grave demonstrate our value and how much we're loved. So how does Paul help us finish strong? He says, keep yourself from pride and foolish controversy. Don't be like the world in this way. Second, avoid the snare of discontentment and wealth. He talks about this twice in verses 6 through 10 and then 17 through 19. We'll read both of those sections. He actually closes the letter with those verses in verse 19, and yet there's something in between that we'll get to finally. On the one hand, he'll say money is a blessing and our wealth comes from God for our enjoyment, and then he'll warn us about the comfort and the security and the power that money provides us and how that can be dangerously deceptive and spiritually destructive. So money is good, But it's dangerous, he says here. Again, reiterating what he'd said earlier in the letter. It's like fire. It can keep you warm. It can burn your house down. Paul already told us the false teachers had an incorrect view of themselves. Now he says they have an incorrect view of wealth. Their idea, 
They followed the pattern of other religious systems around them. They used their position and their reputation to get more money. Gain is the word used. They leveraged their influence for their own personal gain. But listen to Paul's correction in verse 6. He says, now there is great gain, but a different kind of gain. There is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we do not take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. There's a great gain to godliness, but the gain isn't material. It's not more consumption. It's something you cannot buy. It is contentment. It's a sense of quiet in your soul, knowing you are fully satisfied. Friends, let me just ask you this morning, do you have a quiet soul that feels fully satisfied? When's the last time that's been the expression of your heart, your soul? Is that the reality that you are experiencing right now? That is yours in Christ. It is his gift to us. It is his reality for us. This great gain, this contentment, it's a peace in your soul knowing that you're fully provided for. Paul reminds us we brought nothing into the world. We were born, you know, we know how this is. We're born in our birthday suit. It includes nothing, completely stripped, completely naked, completely broke. We brought nothing material into the world. You will take nothing material out of this world. So why all this lust after money and material wealth? His words are so obvious and they're so cutting. Think about what he's saying. You came from nothing when you were born and you will keep nothing when you die. So money does not have the value that we attach to it. If we can keep this perspective, it will help promote contentment in our hearts It will help keep us from wrecking our faith. Look at verse nine. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and uh, destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Maybe your translation is a little different. I think this one's much more accurate. I think this one's been misquoted many times before, for the love of money is the root of all evil. That's not the best translation. The best translation, I believe, is for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. A huge distinction there we'll talk about in a moment. It is through this craving, he says, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So here's the descent. First, temptation. Second, caught in a snare. Then plunged into ruin and destruction. And here's what's tricky. Paul is not warning us about money in and of itself. He's warning us about the love of money. He's not warning us about being rich. He's warning us about the, uh, the desire to be rich. And the truth is, I can't always see, I can't always see your love of money. Sometimes, maybe like in extravagant cases, like it's kind of out there and it's obvious and whatever, But a lot of times, I can't see that in you in the same way you can't see the desires of my heart. If you hang out with me long enough, you might say, hey man, he's really into that or he's really into this. And you might know some of those things, but but the truth is, it's like a plant. You can't see roots. You, You can see the plant, you can see the tree that grows from the roots, but you can't see the root itself. Some things are beneath the surface. 
Do you know what's so interesting to me about this culture? If you just allow me to go there for a moment. We are, there's no controversy here, the wealthiest nation on the planet. Not everybody in our church family has that reality, but it's the reality as a nation. As a group, again, not every person, we live in opulence compared to the rest of the world. Nothing shocking here. Here's what's shocking to me. I've been a pastor at this church for 21 years and people have come to me over the years with all kinds of issues and all kinds of things that they want to talk about and confess and try to figure out. They'll come with sins of drugs or alcohol or food or sex or or, or an issue with anger or lying or gossip or jealousy or hatred or pride or disobedience, everything you can imagine. But in 21 years, it it just hit me like a ton of bricks this week as I was thinking about, about it. In two decades of ministry, there has not been one one person from this, from this whole kind of network of churches called Woodside in this culture that is full of extreme wealth who has ever come to me and said, I'm confessing a love of money. Isn't that crazy? Like of all the things that we could struggle with in our culture, wouldn't this be somewhere up there because of the type of environment we live in? And yet, like, it's something that we're, we just tend to be blind to. They, they've, I've never had one person come and say, I'm struggling with the love of money. I'm struggling with greed. It's hurting my family and hurting my soul. Not once. The great reformer, Martin Luther, said three conversions are necessary when a person decides to follow Christ. The conversion of the heart, the conversion of the mind, and the conversion of the purse. It's, it's interesting to me when you think about our culture, it, we, we might think sometimes that we don't have abundance, but the world is not fooled. If you've ever had an international or someone from other cultures come and live with you, they, they might come to your home and they'll be like, wait, 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 you're, you're driving your car into a, 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 you call it a garage? That's like a house for cars. Most of the world doesn't have houses for cars. You've got a house for your cars, And then you go into the home and you have all these rooms and you walk into your bedroom and your bedroom has a bed and all the different things in it. But then off that bedroom, you have another room that's part of the bedroom that's just a room, a whole room, not not for somebody to sleep, not to cook, not to do anything else other than to hold your clothes. And so we go into there, and we're, we're, we, you might have done it today. You go into that room for the clothes and you're like, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. I got nothing to wear. Just nothing. And what happens is we become so blind to the issue. It's like we actually have this bountiful overflow of baskets. It's like the Lord when he multiplied the bread and the fish. And we've got this overflow and we're looking at the overflow, but because our culture is constantly feeding us this stream that, guess what, there's somebody with more. Guess what? There's somebody with more. Guess what? There's somebody with more. So we actually have the overflow, but think we have scarcity. Friends, this is blindness. And I'm not just bringing it out to pick on us. We're just talking about it because Paul, in God's word, wanted this read to the church so that we would see, so that we would understand how much of your hope is wrapped up in money. Is more money the solution to your anxiety? Is more money what helps you feel more secure? I love that this church family celebrates the generosity of of the place. And 
I love that we just work through the word of God expositionally and take it verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we hit it when, when it comes. And I love your generosity. The truth is I've raised a whole family because of you, literally because of you. And yet if we're being honest with the text today, I have to say the same warnings that are here. And the truth of our church family is that three out of 10 people who call this their home that are members here, they don't give it all. The average household averages about $5,000 a year. The average household income for this community is over about 110,000. So the average gift is under 5%. And I say that not to judge, not to do anything other than to work through the text and say, let's just let the Holy Spirit do what he wants to do in our own hearts. If you are someone that's abounding in generosity, carry on. And if he's bringing conviction, respond because it's all part of our discipleship and growing up together as we work through what God has for us today. And so he says, this is how I can help you. This is what I can say to you. And he gives this final warning. As for the rich, verse 17, in the present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. We're meant to enjoy it. We're not meant to look at it with shame. We're meant to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus, storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. How does Paul help us finish strong? Keep yourself from pride and foolish controversy. Avoid the snare of discontentment and wealth. And finally, pursue the life and light of Jesus. He closes with this amazing doxology. It's not enough to have a correct view of money and material possessions. We have to have a correct view of Jesus. So look at verse seven where he talks about our Lord. He said, but as for you, O man of God, you can put there, Paul's addressing Timothy, but he's also addressing every man, woman, child who is a disciple of Christ. As for you, flee these things, run from them. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who is his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. He, Jesus, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, God, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And the church says, amen. Paul is saying, flee wickedness. Pursue the way of Christ. Engage in the good fight of faith. Take an active role in promoting godliness in your own life. I don't know about you guys, but by far, my favorite part of any resort or water park that I've ever been to is the Lazy River. It's my favorite. I just want the tube. I want to get my shades. I want to get a cold drink. I want to sit in the tube and just let, 
let the current take me where it's gonna go. It's, it's, it's glorious, it's wonderful until you have teenagers and they're fighting. But other than that, like, <laughs> it's so amazing. And as much as I enjoy that experience, it's truly the opposite of the Christian life because followers of Jesus are going literally, spiritually, in every way against the current. That's the way we're called to live, against the current. We are traveling upstream. And if you are in the lazy river mode, it'll sweep you away. And so Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, listen to me. Let your church listen to me. Take these warnings. Know that you are held in Christ under his grace, but pursue godliness because if you walk down that path, if you take that tube, it's not gonna take you where you think it's gonna go. It's gonna end up in a different place. So he says, get off that tube, get out of that relationship, get help with that habit. God wants to finish what he started in you. Will you let him? I've heard it said that the gospel is contrary to earning, but it is not contrary to effort. We do not earn our salvation. It is purchased by the blood of Christ, completely independent of any performance on our part. Yet at the same time, once we are saved by grace, we put forth effort to pursue the way of Jesus. He said, guess what? You're gonna have to take up your cross. I walked uphill, upstream to Calvary. Paul walked uphill, upstream he summited it. He made it back. They made it home. But the journey wasn't easy. They needed each other. They needed the truth of God's word. They needed the divine help of the Holy Spirit. And they needed resolve. So as C.S. Lewis wrote, you can't go back, and maybe that's where some of your minds go, like, man, I'm struggling with a lot of these things today. You can't go back and change the beginning, C.S. Lewis says. But you can start where you are and change the ending. You can change the ending. You can respond to the gospel today. You can repent today. You can confess today. You can pick up your cross and follow Jesus today. You can follow his way, which will lead your heart and soul to peace and contentment. Choose his way. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your way. Thank you for your son. Father, there's so many things that once we start in you and we begin that journey of faith that distract us and pull us and tug at us and want to take us away from the truth that is Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we just ask, we plead for your forgiveness for those ways where we've strayed. And yet, Father, we don't leave this place hopeless. We leave this place empowered, knowing that you've given us your spirit that through our confession, forgiveness has been extended like we sang over all of our sin. And so Father, give us the strength to finish the race because we know what's at the end of the story and at the end of the story, may it be true of each of us, just like the sinner hanging on the cross next to your son, that it would be true of me that I can say, that Jesus can say to me, today, as you cross that finish line, as that final whistle blows, as you summit the crest of that mountain, you will be with me.
And that's the prize in paradise. So Father, give your church the strength we need. Motivate us with the future of heaven. And may our lives be worship to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.